Hello, and welcome to another episode of Autodesk Digital Builder Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Thomas. And today I am joined by two professionals to dig into the world of BIM, figuring out what the heck is actually happening with BIM, what people are doing in the field, where the future is going. And I think we might break some myths while we're kind of getting into the conversation as well. And to help tell that story today, I am joined by Kelly Lubelai, BIM Program Manager from Cupertino Electric, and Jeremy Thibodeau, Senior Manager of Customer Success here at Autodesk. And so thank you both for joining me today. We've been trying to record this episode for, I think, five or six months now, and I'm, I'm excited to have you both on the show. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I think this is a great topic. Really happy to be here as well. Looking forward to a good conversation. Obviously, BIM's been a, a part of my uh, postgraduate life uh, the entire time and really excited to talk with like-minded people. Yeah, I think we we figured out real quick when we first started talking about this one that you're both a couple of, uh, you know, BIM nerds, for lack of a, a better way to qualify it. And so I'm excited to get a chance to uncover the nerdiness and really figure out, you know, where your uh, your perspectives on the technology go. But as I mentioned a minute ago, my hope today is to start off just kind of defining some of the terms that we're talking about today, breaking away some of those myths and thinking about how BIM is starting to impact the, the field and, you know, where the future is actually headed with this technology. And so to get that started, Kelly, I've got a question that I want to throw your direction. Can you define what exactly BIM or building information modeling really is or what that really means to construction? Yeah, I think we have a can definition for it, but I think everybody thinks of it a little bit differently, especially in how we use it out in in our day-to-day jobs. But overall, I tend to think of of BIM as three-dimensional geometry with data or with information attached to it help us understand what it is that we are building in in the construction industry. And I'm glad that we've kind of unpacked that baseline a little bit. And I know everybody's like the BIM model. And there's a little bit of redundancy there, I think, when you're actually breaking out your, uh, <laughs> your acronyms. But BIM is something that's touched the construction industry for a really long time. And I think it's been very iterative in what we we're expecting, what people are actually doing, and how it impacts all the different stakeholders in construction. And so, Jeremy, I've got a question for you because you've talked about this when we spoke last. What was that promised ideal state of BIM when all of this started and what's actually happening right now? Yeah, the reality when BIM first started to get uh, headway in the industry, there was a lot of utopic ideas of having this live digital twin model. And obviously, that's something that we're starting to actually be able to realize 15 years later. But realistically, the way that you know I look at it in, in terms of how the process has evolved is it's really just an advanced communication tool. And, you know, the idea of tying data to model geometry is obviously the the core kind of need. But when it comes down to it, it allows different stakeholders within the industry in a project to better communicate and collaborate around what's actually happening. Yeah, I think for us, you know, that that's one thing that we sort of misunderstood as an industry or maybe, you know, was was sold by those that, that originally introduced the concept was that, you know, BIM was equated to tools and those tools would be sort of this one solution fits all and and brings in this sort of universal idea of all the challenges that we have in the design and construction industry. And that's sort of where we're at today is realizing that that was kind of what we envisioned and BIM helps us get there. 
but it's not this one single solution. It's a big part of it and it helps considerably. And we are driving towards that initial vision, but it's definitely not kind of how we initially perceived it. Yeah. And to that point, Kelly, one thing I'd like to just kind of comment on is that I think when we first started, BIM was thought of much more as a tool than a process. And I think, you know, along the the evolution of people getting more comfortable with it has realized that the authoring part of building information modeling is only one portion of it. And it really comes down to trying to find a lot of different ways of leveraging model data and geometry in order to achieve the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. And I think we've finally gotten to a point now where the the technology that's available is starting to catch up to what that original vision was when all of these things started coming out. And so our ability to start building really meaningful digital twins is starting to become reality. And if you're out there, there's some good episodes in the past that we've had about about that specific tech and, and where and what the potential is. But Kelly, I'm curious. Are there any myths or or common misinformation tied to BIM and the things that we've already kind of dug in on a little bit that you'd like the opportunity to bust or do away with before we we get a little bit further into what's happening? What do you hear all the time that makes you cringe and you just want want to get rid of it right now? (laughs) I think for me, there's two that are very pervasive through the industry, which are that you know, one, that BIM is sort of what we know now, but we know when we originally started, I don't think we had, we really had the term AI. And then it's this, you know, we push a button and it's all solved for us, right? And the technology doesn't do that. It, that's just, that's not a capability that it will ever have is that we just push a button and it's all done. I wish. <laughs> There's still people needed, research needed, input needed from other places to, to be able to run the process. And the other one is that it is all connected on its own. You know, we talk about data more and more and we're getting to a point of having data-driven solutions, data-driven, you know, decisions and being able to actually, you know, leverage all that information that comes out of our past experiences. But the different tools that we use, the process itself, isn't just this tool that just magically carries the data from, from one place to another. There has to be work and other resources involved in, in making that happen. You know, and it's always just so important to step back and make sure that we're level setting what's actually possible. And Kelly, your your point about connectivity is is huge, and it's something that you know I talk about with my peers here at Autodesk pretty frequently. Is is how do we make sure that that data moves around? And like you said, it doesn't just magically turn on. It's not a oh, we have our ideal state. There's there's definitely work that goes into touching every one of those aspects of data and technology. And I think one of my favorite things that's happening right now is I'm hearing more and more contractors talking about data in a way that they didn't five years ago. And so we have all this data that people have been gathering and now we're putting it into a situation where it's actionable and people are actually gleaning insights from it that they can in turn take to how they build that project and the next one. So it's, it's kind of a fun moment where all these technologies are converging. Jeremy, how about you? Are there any myths that you'd like to do away with today while you have the opportunity tied to BIM? Yeah, so I'd like to plus one on uh, what Kelly had talked about. I think the tendency of industries, not just construction, is to really attach themselves to the buzzwords that are going around. AI is one of them. Another one that I think is is definitely much earlier than marketing might uh, necessarily tell you, and it's around kind of like AR and VR. And realistically, a lot of the uh, you know different uh, use cases for AR 
are still a few years out before they're usable. And for right now, I think it is interesting to continue to build on and test out those technologies. But as far as a pragmatic use of something that might be able to be leveraged by anyone on a job site, it still has a ways to go. And I think that side of things is much more of something that still needs to be incubated in order to be properly developed and, and adopted within you know, uh, just everyone on a job site. But a high level, that's something that I think people have a tendency to latch onto because it's one of those big buzzwords that gets thrown around from time to time. And I think there's some misunderstanding sometimes about what things like artificial intelligence and augmented reality and machine learning can actually accomplish. And I think originally there was concern and hesitation about it being kind of a, a job killer per se. And that's absolutely not the case because I think the the key term there is augmentation. It's It's more of a how can we help people do what they're trying to do and what computer can do at scale that a person can't do itself. I'm excited to see where that tech goes. I do know that the the cost has come down for things like VR and such compared to where it was even five years ago. So it's, it's an exciting moment, but I appreciate your transparency on the, uh, the viability from your, <laughs> your seat as far as uh, project readiness for some of the workflows that are being promised. But on that note, I'd, I'd love it if you could extrapolate a little further, Jeremy, on how are most companies right now actually leveraging BIM on their projects? Like, Can you give me a, a sense for what the standard implementation of the technology looks like. Yeah, when it comes to implementation, there's obviously always a spectrum that you're working with. You know, I think most contractors, both from a GC and sub-level, are still leveraging primarily building information modeling process for trade coordination and to build buildings better than they did previously. I think that's always going to be table stakes for any organization to leverage. To your point, where you start to see the differentiation of more entry level to advance is really the leveraging of data to make better decisions. So, you know, when it comes down to any database, it's only as good as the quality of data that is being inputted. So, if you are making sure that you're rigorously capturing data, whether that be in the design process, the install process, or during operations, you really are going to be able to leverage the value out of it based on what you put into it. So I think the major things that I've seen that has changed has been the leverage of the actual eye in BIM, where previously it was much more geometry focused. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that uh, subcontractors, designers, and some general contractors are certainly utilizing the authoring tools. We're getting into, you know, pretty much everybody using our coordination type tools. And then from there, it really starts to branch out very quickly into what additional tools are used based on the type of work that's being done. On the construction side, you're going to see very commonplace. You're going to have a lot of total station type work. For placement and layout, you're going to see, I think, quite a bit of reality capture in whatever form that takes. You know, there's there's a lot of different technologies for that. In in design, I think, you know, we've got a lot more of your generative design type tools, your add-ins that help with, with formulaics, with consistency and standards and things like that within the actual tools themselves. Construction really starts to diverge a little bit more into what can help in different areas based on the type of work that's being done for contractors. And so that really starts to spread out much, much quicker. 
Yeah, it feels like BIM is starting to touch more phases of construction than it might have historically, which has been an interesting development of that, is that information piece starts to become more visible, as uh, as, uh, Jeremy mentioned. And I think also when we look back to, you know, your, your comments about digital twins earlier, when we have owners who are a bit more progressive in how they think about building and they think about all these steps before they actually send an RFP out for bid, I think that's where we're seeing some of the more meaningful and, and interesting like leveraging of, of the technology because they've thought about their end state in a way that is hard to do if you're two steps into the project already and you decide, oh, I want a digital twin, but you didn't think about that when you started the conversation. So there's there's a lot of people out there, I think now, who are starting to ask those questions. And uh, my hope is all of the serial builders out there and owners especially start to ask those questions sooner and you see, start seeing more meaningful mandates and RFPs. Uh, as a former proposal manager myself, I've seen all of the the level of you know owner decree or lack thereof, depending on the RFP that you get. And I think there's a middle ground that ensures that you're getting exactly what your vision is. And it wasn't just a copy and paste from an older RFP that makes your proposal manager very sad inside. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm definitely starting to see a lot of serial builders, owners, agents, things like that, that are having their own authoring tools. They're having even resources within their companies that create their own standards, create their own templates, set forth what exactly they're looking for in a more detailed manner to work with their design and their construction team so that they have a better understanding of exactly what those expected deliverables are and handovers are for that building, that building life cycle. So they can get into digital twins. They can start to use it for facilities maintenance and things like that. Uh, it's definitely an interesting shift and really, you know, the next place where, where BIM is starting to, to gather its footholds into how it can help the building industry. Yeah, and I would, I would agree with that, Kelly, that I think a lot of owners have gotten to the point where they're starting to internalize or at least agree with that the total cost of ownership is so heavily weighted post-construction uh, that they realize that they need to do a better job of planning and getting the information that they need during the construction process so they can better operate their facility post-turnover. and that migration or acceptance of of that idea has, has taken a while. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, just starting off with uh, Kobe deliverables and you're doing all these very advanced things and you pass it off to an owner and they just don't use it. And that is was was really disheartening from from a BIM guy's perspective of doing all this work and realizing and the reason was is that there was no either skill set or need to pick that data up and continue to keep it up to date throughout the entire, you know, running of a facility. And I think now based on either just the the general norms of what's happening in the industry, that that's definitely shifting a little bit, which is really interesting. And I think we're at a cool moment now where there are new roles being created at the owner's side to to manage and handle this information that didn't exist previously or weren't full-time seats at a company to to really think about, you know, managing a digital twin and the data that comes into it, whether it's BIM generated or otherwise. And so there's a lot of opportunity there. And for the smaller owners, I think they're deepening their relationships with their contractors now because they can provide those services 
post handover. And so there's, you know, new revenue lines for those relationships. If you find yourself in that situation and just being able to confidently know what was built and when, if you're keeping your digital twin and you're modeling up to date after handover, you know, five, 10, 15 years. So there's none of this mystery pipes in the wall or something random that you didn't know about. You you can be very confident and that saves money in, in the long term as well, because you don't have a guy running out to a job site to cut a hole in the wall and pee or figure out what materials were used in that so you can renovate or replace all your light bulbs or whatever that thing might be. You just look it up. It's all on the computer. It's all available. It's a very different conversation. So, Yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of the threshold that we're at where I see some companies starting to move in that direction as, as owner operators. You know, I feel like I'd be a little bit remiss if I didn't acknowledge that they're still definitely, you know, asking for things that, that we don't understand exactly what what it is that we're asking for. I think that also kind of becomes the responsibility of, for instance, my company as a contractor and the general contractors that we work with to go back and have that conversation with the owner and say, okay, this is what you wrote in the contract. What are you trying to get to so that we can provide that and not just take a guess and do this additional work? Because what you're asking for costs money, right? And these owners are starting to, to recognize that there's value here and invest more at the construction part of the life cycle so that they can get value out of it through the rest of the life cycle. And so, you know, we can help them as being, you know, those who have been doing this longer and say, okay, I know that you asked for this. Let me make sure that I understand what your deliverable is here, you know, what your end goal is so that, that I can get you that and not get you things that you don't need. And those types of relationships, I think, are really going to help mature that, that knowledge and also how that life cycle speeds up and how that usage gets sped up for those owners, owner-operators. I love that you brought that up because, I mean, I've spoken at length about the relationships being so important in the construction industry and, and being able to go to your, your GC that you're working with, your owner, and have that honest conversation in a way that from the owner's perspective, once they unpack it, they can clearly see is in their best interest. You're not, you're not trying to, you know, sidestep something or whatever. It's like, help us understand your vision better so we can give you what you want and what you want will likely cost less because I understand it in greater detail. But I think that has a lot of long play too. And like a serial builder, like we were talking about before, you've built that trust now and, you know, you might get sole source for a new project moving forward. And all of that comes back to that data transparency. And it's, it's a huge aspect of it. And Kelly, I have a follow-on that I'm, I'd love to ask you. So I'd like to hear from your perspective, but what do the different roles or different stakeholders tied to a, an average construction project? How do they touch or interact with BIM technology differently? Oh boy. Uh, how long is this, sex, this podcast? Um, <laughs> Take as much time as you need. <laughs> you know, everybody interacts in a very unique way. So I think, you know, it becomes very unique because on the design side, you're really starting from scratch and creating the idea. So we're working with authoring tools and some coordination tools to really make sure that, that everybody's idea comes together to, to both meet code and, and really realize the owner's vision. And, you know, of course, the designer gets to put their unique touch on it and really create something special for the, the owner and for the community where it gets built. As soon as you move from that section over to the construction side, you really start to see it take off in a lot of different directions. You know, design, they have a few different areas where they branch out. You know, like this, the generative design gets to be really interesting. Um, we're starting to get a lot more calculations to get involved with the actual engineering but those are pretty close to the original design themselves. As soon as you, you start to branch out from that design, 
it just really, really takes off. And getting into your, your general contractors and your, your trade contractors, we really start to see a lot of different ways that the BIM becomes the core, but a smaller and smaller portion of how it gets used. So, you know, for us, like we're an electrical contractor, we take our model and not only do we coordinate it with the other trades and make sure that we're, you know, creating drawings for our field to build off of, but we're also taking a lot of that data and shifting it out of the BIM world and into our prefabrication and our modular divisions that are really more like manufacturing environments so that we can start with better data to get better ordering for, you know, better pricing and also speed up the amount of time that we're spending on builds out in the field so we can start to meet tighter schedules. You're going to see similar things in your mechanical and plumbing. And then you start to see it, it kind of diverge even more. You can start to look at the safety hazards in the building. Those get pulled out in different ways. And again, from there, it becomes how many times that data gets removed and reutilized through different tools. We talked a little bit about, you know, building maintenance and things like that. There's a lot of sensors now that get built into our different building systems. And the building management systems that we have run off of those sensors and can easily alert your facilities management to that information. The data is the part that gets used for getting that information to the facilities management. Some of the more advanced owner-operators are running the data portion that's telling them when a part breaks, when it needs maintenance, and coupling that with the model as well to be able to look and know exactly where to go in the building to fix that. Instead of, I looked at the data and it says it's in, you know, boiler room 2A, I can look at the actual model and see not only where it's at in the room, but exactly, you know, which piece of equipment it's attached to. So it's really more and more different, different stakeholders are touching it in more and more ways. And to me, that's what I find really exciting and interesting about the industry is how we keep finding different ways to use it and work with it. Because there's so many new, new ways to use it that we didn't think of before. And it's typically around the data, right? We've gotten now procurement is starting to work with it. So we're starting to, to pull, you know, direct orders directly off of, of the model instead of just out to the prefab levels or the modular levels. I've seen project management and scheduling teams that are working with it. So they're looking at how things are being built and what statuses are changing. So even schedulers are starting to look at models. People that you would have thought would have never touched the model in the past are starting to actually look at that three-dimensional world and see how that spatial placement of these elements, instead of just the data that they saw before, can be tied together and help them make more informed decisions about their jobs. Kelly, you answered that question exactly how I was hoping you would, because it it covers just the the widespread potential that's there. So not everybody has embraced BIM to the the depth that you've overviewed at this point, but there's so much there to to consider. And is as everybody starts centralizing on whatever platform you've chosen as your you know construction management tool and such, and figuring out where this data can show up. I think that's that's how we start marching forward towards you know that utopia that we were promised 15 or so years ago of just the BIM data. Made 
magically done all, does all these things that we want it to. And, and it does a lot of them now and it might not do it magically, but it, it does have a big impact for, you know, most any role that shows up on a project. And that's interesting. And Jeremy, it kind of leads into the next question that I, I wanted to send your direction. Can you tell me a little bit more about your perspective on how field teams specifically are leveraging BIM? Because before the perspective, I think, was just BIM is something for a person sitting at a desk at the home office who's done some modeling and then boom, let's ship that out. I don't think that that's necessarily the case anymore. So I'd love your perspective there. Yeah, it's definitely, it's changed. So when when I first started implementing BIM, you know, over 15 years ago, it was very specialized. And there are still areas where you need very specialized roles in order to be able to achieve the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. When it comes to the field, however, a lot of the uses that I've seen are much more pragmatic in nature, just purely based on how field operations works. And it can range from having increased efficiencies when it comes to installation and layout. It could have some increased efficiencies around quality and commissioning. And if you are kind of collaborating around assets, model-based assets that are tied to physical assets in the field, you can really start to get a lot of the full life cycle value that you're trying to achieve with, with the overall process. So whether it's tracking of precast material from fabrication into installation, whether it's working with the air handling unit from procurement, which are obviously long lead, lead time items, and into actual installation and coordination. So, you know, it definitely varies depending on what you're working with, but it's much more about getting what happens in the design and coordination phase properly installed and up and running in the physical space. And the hope is, is that you're able to capture a lot of that important information in terms of O&M information for that turnover kind of post-closeout. So the reality is, is it will change depending on who's kind of managing it, but there, there are a lot of different ways to, to leverage value out of just 3D geometry, combining it with data through more pragmatic processes. Yeah, I think, you know, one of my favorite examples that comes out of that, which is just, a, to me, a, a fairly mundane activity that we do out in the field with our installers is, you know, getting access to the model on, on an iPad or a station that they can quickly access is conduit installs can get very complicated. There can be a lot of kind of, you know, weaving or threading through. And we have some projects that get to where you're having hundreds of, of large bore conduits crossing through each other that, some of our projects have have areas that have earned nicknames like the spaghetti bowl or, you know, <laughs> things like that, that kind of nobody wants to try and figure out what exactly is going on there. And so on the BIM side of things, right, when you're trying to put together something from a 3D model onto these 2D drawings to give these guys to build, it's like, how many different ways can I show this to really accurately, you know, let them know how to install this? And we've gotten to the point where these these installers out in the field they know that, hey, I can just zoom in on this area and look at it. So all I just really need to know is just that real basic, like, give me that plan of view, give me a small section. And the rest, I'll just go in and look at it so that I know, okay, this one goes and jumps over this one. And this one goes under and twists around this one. And they really use that in a way that we never would have thought. And actually, even then, shortens the amount of work that, that we have to produce for them and lets us work together in that way. Uh, and that's been a hugely beneficial one for us. Yeah, to build on that, Kelly, you know, back to like my original comment of BIM is really just an advanced communication tool. 
I really agree with your sentiment that you know, realistically, if a picture is worth a thousand words, a model's worth a million because it allows you to take your own interpretation of what something looks like from an innumerable uh, different kind of perspective. So you can truly internalize what's happening. And you don't necessarily have to pantomime or, or, or use your internal kind of experience to, to be able to visualize what's from a 2D space into a three-dimensional kind of space that you're working in. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's, it's those unintended benefits that we never really realized, I think, that, that really are some of my favorite parts of the tools that we use. And that's really neat. I'm sure a deeper glimpse into the spaghetti bowl helps unpack that order of operations in a way that you might not have been able to do with 2D plans because when things are so complex and interconnected, I mean, our, our buildings are getting incredibly complex, especially if you're like looking at life sciences or anything else. And so to be able to deconstruct that in a more useful way for somebody who's actually out in the field who needs to in turn then install all of those things that they're looking at seems like a, a tremendous win. Kelly, so building on that question, I'm interested to hear, where do you see the biggest potential for field-based BIM implementation, both in the near and distant future? Honestly, you know, I think there's there's really two places, you know, a little bit more, I think, or, or, or robustness of that integration between what do we put on a sheet versus what do we look at in the model and what's, you know, how is that beneficial for the people out in the field? Because I think we're really just hitting the tip of the iceberg for that as far as the skill set of the people out in the field and what they can read off of, off of the model and what they can look at versus, you know, what we're producing. And so I think as they become more fluent in using those tools and working with the model, we're going to see an alteration in that dynamic of what becomes an actual, you know, what we call a shop drawing or an installation drawing versus what do I just look at as, as building off of the model itself. And I think the other side of that is going to be, we have a ton of data that gets packed into those models, regardless of whether it ends up on a drawing or not. And I think there's just going to be a continual expansion of how that data gets used out in the field, whether it's for the actual install or whether it's for the procurement of the materials or any portion of that, there's really a huge opportunity right now in how we expand that in improving the field operations. And we see lots, lots of little inroads, the, the different, we see some startups that are trying to make them. We see features in different tools, just ideas that companies are, are home growing themselves to, to sort of reach into that. So there's really a massive area for opportunity right there as well. I would definitely agree with that, Kelly. I think the motivation for change is around installation in terms of a lot of different macro factors that we're dealing with. Everyone talks about you know skilled labor shortages and material prices. I think the the more efficient you can get at installation in from a quality perspective and just from a productivity perspective, I think is is where there is most uh, benefit at the moment. And I think it, it showcases something pretty neat now where a lot of the advanced tech and construction, I think there was, there was a mantra for a long time that like, this is for the VDC team. The VDC team is going to help with our BIM technology. They're going to help with any new implementation that happens. And we're starting to see that skill set 
expand to all different scopes within, you know, the field team, the office team and such. And I think that that knowledge is going to be a, a game changer in, in the future, especially as we deal with, you know, the labor shortages and all the other fun things that we talk about all the time because of how impactful that they're going to be in the next few years within within our industry. Yeah, on on that point, Eric, I think in a lot of ways, you know, the idea of there being a BIM person dedicated isn't going to go away. However, what that BIM person focuses on might change and some of the more earlier workflows or processes might be a part of just the, the standard skill set of a foreman or, or a project manager rather than some of the more advanced things like robotics and AI and all the buzzword stuff. And I think that's realistically a good thing, even if you're in a more specialized BIM or BDC kind of role, because, you know, doing the same thing over and over again it can get kind of boring from time to time. So learning new skill sets and democratizing some of the things that are a little bit more mature, I think, is, is a good thing both for the industry and, and for the individual. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, you know, to your point, Jeremy, there's there's a huge opportunity for shift in the industry. And a lot of us see that there's there's options for that shift. And we're kind of, you know, working with what we have now and, and waiting to see how the industry itself shifts to recognize where it goes. You know, we hear a lot of talk about DFMA and productization and, you know, higher, higher prefab and, and modular work and things like that. And that will create an opportunity for sort of splitting the industry into who's who's building and creating the modularity, you know, the modulars or the products that become productized, who's designing using those products, and then who's out there installing those products. We also see a lot of, you know, shift in general to sort of more of a minor prefabrication style. And so then are we all taking on prefabrication? And is it more customized prefabrication per project? And I've worked a little bit with each of these. And as we do them, they all require a little bit different skill set. And so as we continue to progress them forward, there's always different tasks to take on that utilize different skill sets. And BIM people typically be the, are the ones that people look to to fill these roles. You know, when I first started doing this, you know, over 15 years ago, it was like, oh, you know how to use CAD, so you know how to use BIM. Or you know how to use BIM, so you know how to do graphics. Or you know how to do BIM, so you know how to do IT work, right? I'm like, uh, well, I might be able to help you, but really, I just know this one very specific thing. And now it's starting to be like, oh, well, I can do a little bit of code, and I can do a little bit of data analytics, and I can do a little bit of this, and I can do a little bit of that. And we start to, you know, see those skill sets start to, to broaden and broaden in what falls into that category of BIM because we're the ones that are touching all of it. Everybody else is still utilizing it, but their window is small where our window is broadening. And so that definition right now, it's becoming greater. At some point, I think it's going to narrow back again because of kind of how the direction the industry goes on, on how we're going to decide to progress as far as construction. But for now, it's it's going to broaden, and then we're going to see kind of which direction it picks and see how it narrows to move forward. And it'll be very interesting to watch that happen. 
Yeah, you're, you're definitely wearing a lot of hats when it comes to technology in a role like yours, which I think keeps things interesting and exciting because you you get to see the the change in how we actually go out and, and build. Hopefully it does narrow a bit more so you don't have to you know juggle everything. But I, I understand what you're saying as far as how we've gotten to the point that we are. It's It's an interesting moment in the industry. Yeah, very much. I, I enjoy being able to, you know, like Jeremy said, it can get a little bit, you know, monotonous doing the same thing over and over again. And so, you know, the majority of my my work is with within our BIM department, but I assist with a lot of other construction technology implementation. And I very much enjoy that because, yeah, it gives me exposure to what are other departments or other portions of our company doing and how do they tie back into BIM? Because inevitably they almost always do. A couple of my recent projects have been with project management tools and with our modular division and their modeling technology. And their modeling technology, while kind of more manufacturing-based, is still going to be informed by our building technology modeling. And so, you know, looking at the, the interdependence of those two and what's the best way to proceed forward so that we can really be efficient in that process has been an absolutely fascinating uh, journey for me. So with that said, I'm interested in hearing how those out there interested in in adopting or improving their team's focus on BIM or starting to accelerate the adoption of the technology at their company, what advice would you offer to them to to get started or widen that net, I guess, to, to end up in a seat similar to your own? Oh, boy. be curious try the things and take the chances when you can you know I started as just a a drafter at an architecture firm and instead of staying at an architecture firm as a drafter I kind of paid attention to what interested me I started with a very very small firm they didn't have standards I'm like you know what we should do is we should have standards (laughs) who to think said hey you know how to do that you want to you want to be a cab manager I'm like okay sure so yeah, so anytime somebody would say, hey, do you want to do this? It's like, sure, why not? I get to learn how to do something new. And that's a big part of our industry is do you want to step in and, and step outside the box that you're currently working in? Or do you want to, to stay within that box and kind of keep exploring that box? And that's to me where the decision lies. I had a very similar trajectory in construction as far as one, I did my background is technical communication and I rolled in as a proposal manager. And a lot of the things that happened early in my career were exactly what you shared is asking lots of questions and going, that's interesting. Tell me more about it. And it unlocked a lot of opportunity that probably wouldn't have appeared if I hadn't asked those questions and been the curious kid in the corner going, I don't understand what's going on right now. Please help me. Because it's it's a complex industry, regardless of if you you know go to school for something that's directly tied to it or not. Uh, Jeremy, how about you? Do you have any advice for somebody out there who's either interested in, in broadening their BIM implementation or starting to accelerate the adoption? Yeah, so one, one thing that I would probably say is be very deliberate about the amount of time you spend on different aspects of kind of innovation or implementation. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can really kind of break it up into three different areas where you have your incremental innovations, which are much more pragmatic in nature, but it's making minor little tweaks to your process in order to be a little bit more efficient. The next would be kind of adjacent. So something that is just outside of your core responsibilities that you might be able to get some some benefit on. And then there's that transformational. And I think the trap that a lot of people fall into is they focus so much on the transformational that they forget about 
the incremental adjustments that they can make, uh, which are much more impactful in the short term and will actually help you be more effective at getting to that transformational in the future. So I think, you know, to my point before of the buzzwords are those transformational side of things. And the reality is, is if you focus on the things that are very important right now, while keeping a, you know, a, an eye on what the future looks like, you're much more likely to be successful with your implementation. I think that's a great point, Jeremy. And one thing that I always make sure that is is critical to a program that I work in is that, you know, I always think of, you know, the, the new tools and things. Those are the bright, shiny objects that are out there. Those are the things that are fun that everybody wants to play with. And they should be explored, but they won't work if you don't have a strong foundation in your program. And that's going to be where you have those, if you don't have the incremental things, you have to build those up at least, you know, and that's where you get to the stuff that most people don't want to do, the really boring stuff, like having a template, having standards, you know, having documentation and having training. Because if you don't have those, or if you have them, but they're not easily accessible, your, your team isn't going to know how to function. They're not going to be able to do the basics, like produce consistent, usable drawings for your field or for submittal to, you know, your authority having jurisdiction or whatever. To be able to then go say, you know, okay, now that I've done this and I've gotten my drawings out, now let's look at how I can make it easier to incorporate augmented reality or how I can now take the data that I've put into my model and use it to, you know, influence the schedule or move to work to prefabricating some of my assemblies. And I think you make a great point. It's something that we learned when we were doing the research for harnessing the Dana advantage in construction. If you haven't read that, go check it out. Uh, it's a report that we released last year. And if you don't intentionally deploy new technology or make those changes at a scale that makes sense, you're very quickly going to end up in decision paralysis land or overwhelming your team. And so like shiny new toy syndrome is, is a real thing. You've got to make sure you're adhering and picking the right technology and people can feel very overwhelmed. And I think it's safe to, to dabble in those toys, but just make sure that the dabbling is at a scale that's appropriate for you to, to prove out that new technology for your team. And then also, you know, bring some champions along the way to ensure that that adoption does end up happening at a, a wider scale. But Kelly, you're absolutely right. The standards need to be there. The training needs to be there. Your, your foundation isn't. And if they aren't, that's your starting point. That's your small little bites that you, you know, start hitting before you go, okay, now let's see what augmented reality can do for us or whatever that other thing you happen to be interested in or chasing. But I've got one more question for both of you today. And it's something I ask every guest. And it's one of my favorite things because the, the questions or the answers to the question range very, very widely. And Kelly, I'm going to put you on the hot seat first today, but could you tell me what is one tool that you will always bring to every project that you work on? Oh boy. I'm going to go with a really trite answer and I'm going to say an open mind. Because, you know, I started on the design side and moving to the construction side, one of the things I learned very quickly is that uh, no two projects are alike. I mean, and I even knew that on the design side too, but it's, it's much more prevalent on the construction side. And so listening to the people that are doing the actual work about what their challenges are and, you know, what's preventing them from feeling successful is what's going to help you know how to help them and how to make their job easier and more efficient as opposed to just going in and telling them what's going to be the best. Whether it's something, if you have to go in and implement a tool that's already existing and they don't have a choice, that doesn't mean you can't still listen to them first and explain how the tool will help with those particular issues. 
or you can sit and listen to them and find other ways that may help them as well. But there's always an opportunity to, to make the life of the, the person who's doing the install or the person who's doing the modeling easier if you take the time to, to listen to you know, what's challenging for them. I love that answer because I think it highlights a mindset change that is, has been happening in our industry in the last five to 10 years as well, as far as having more of a, an open space to have those types of conversations instead of being as prescriptive as somebody might feel inclined to. Because I have a bunch of experiences how you should do it. And being able to listen and, and hear where you might be able to deviate a little bit from your own expectations to help empower other people, I think has a huge ROI, both in that particular moment and then you know building that relationship with that person or that team that you're working with as well. So it's it's a multi-layered thing that doesn't necessarily feel as easy as it might initially, but once you start doing it, it's it's huge. It, it has a huge uh, impact. So Kelly, I love that answer. Jeremy, how about you? What is one tool that you will bring to every project that you work on, regardless of what project it is? So in some fashion, Kelly stole my answer, but uh, <laughs> I, I won't hold it against her. And it's a slightly different answer, but the same sentiment. And it's it's bring your listening ears. And realistically, you know, whenever you walk into a job site or a trailer, it's about listening to the people that are there and the challenges that they're running into. And that can help you be more effective in what you're trying to achieve by listening to them and trying to and ensuring that they get what they need out of it. Like an old adage or story that I used to do would be, you know, I'd go to a job site as the BIM guy and I wanted to do these, you know, fun, geeky things. And, but realistically, what my superintendent cared about uh, at the time was doing a site plan. So a entry level to build a relationship was figure out what's important to them while they're mobilizing. And I did some modeling of, of the site. And that was, that was very pragmatic use of the technology. It was a communication of, of where the tower crane was, where the trailer was going to be, where the uh, porta potties, all the real essentials. And from there, it was a much easier time to figure out doing maybe this could be an opportunity to put in a concrete sensor to figure out you know, curing rates of certain things. They're more willing to entertain the geeky aspects of being a BIM person if you help them achieve some of the more pragmatic things. So I found that both from a construction side of things and just in general, if you enter conversations with the intent to listen and not to respond, you're much more likely to uh, get the, the outcomes that you're hoping to achieve to begin with. I like that. And I think it's immediately adjacent to uh, to what Kelly shared. So you're both on the same wavelength today, which is is awesome. But it sounds like once you've proved to that person you're working with that you can meet their needs and goals and expectations, you've given yourself a little more runway to slip in something that's a little, maybe a little bit outside their comfort zone, whether it's advanced technology or a process deviation or something. And what both of what you shared really comes back to again is just that that relationships foundation that is so prevalent in construction as well, which can make or break a building uh, project depending on you know how well or how sideways that relationship might be going with the different stakeholders you're touching. So I appreciate you both you know coming to the table with such interesting answers, and we're getting to the end of the show today. So do either of you have anything you'd like to plug or share with our listeners today, Kelly? I'm going to put you back in the hot seat. 
Uh, sure. We've come up a couple of times. So I will mention that there is a wonderful conference happening in March of next year called Advancing Prefabrication out in Phoenix. Uh, weather should be not too terrible at that time of year. And it is a great way to learn about how the construction side of the industry is moving in the direction of more productization, more DFMA, and accelerating schedules on the job site while still uh, being a little bit more cost conscious and, and finding new ways and, and creative ways to uh, to get buildings built. Nice. I, I love it. And the pivot in more open conversation tied to prefabrication and modular construction in the last few years has been an encouraging one to see because I remember when it started coming up, when I worked at GCs before, it was always, oh, what, what can we prefab to meet this RP requirement? And now it's always just like, oh, our casework or something very simple. And the, the complexity that we're able to introduce with prefab now in a very polished way, it's not boring, bland, compartmentalized box. It's a totally different game is, is huge. So I would say absolutely make sure you check that out. And especially if you live, you know, in Oregon, like I do, uh, the, the weather's probably going to be much better in Phoenix that time of year. Jeremy, how about you? Do you have anything you'd like to share today? I think just from, from a high level is just a, a personal plug. If, if uh, you want to have an interesting conversation or talk about tech, I am a BIM nerd uh, through and through. So love to hear from you. What's the best way for them to find you? LinkedIn or are you uh, bold enough to share your email address? <laughs> oh, li- LinkedIn's probably the good first start. All right. Kelly, how about you? Uh, would LinkedIn be a good place for listeners to reach out to connect with you? LinkedIn is perfect for me. Uh, if you can get that name typed in there, I'm going to be the only one that comes up. <laughs> My burden is I have the most generic name ever, so it takes a little bit more effort to find me. But with all of that said, both of you, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Digital Builder. If you out there listening have any questions for me or want to suggest a guest for a future episode, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Eric Thomas, I'm the only uh, construction uh, manager of thought leadership at the company, so you shouldn't have too much trouble finding me. Or you can also find me on Twitter at builder underscore digital. Also, one thing that I'd like to plug, we have started releasing video podcasts that were recorded at Autodesk University, and there's going to be many more of those, both from AU and elsewhere on the Autodesk Construction Cloud YouTube channel. So if you want to watch some of our recent episodes, that's a great place to check that out. And then finally, I would be a horrible podcast podcast host, if I didn't ask you to please rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do listen to podcasts, all you've got to do is open the app, find Digital Builder, and select the number of stars you think we deserve. I might be biased, but I feel like five would be a great place to start. But either way, it's quite easy and does make a, a meaningful difference for everybody over here at the show. And on that final note, goodbye. Goodbye.